Thanks for joining us for the podcast of the River Anglican Church. Today, we start Advent, the season of anticipating Christmas. Today, Jonathan kicks us off with a sermon from the lectionary where we talk about the coming of Christ. All right, so if you don't mind opening your Bibles or whatever, your phones, if you don't have one, no worries, you can just listen. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 21 today. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Tagg. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, it is great to be with you. I had a real blessing this morning. Yeah, have you ever stepped on the scale after like three days of feasting like we did? And, you know, you kind of have this painful terror of what's going to look like. I had only gained two pounds. So I just want to say, like, I was really blessed this morning that I was thinking it was, you know, I was going to be up in the 280, 290 range. But I'm not that heavy, just in case there was nobody who refuted that at all. But I'm not that heavy. Okay. All righty. Swing and a miss. Okay. Well, let me go ahead and pray since I start off that way. Lord, just thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Help us to be focused, to have fun. Uh, help us to learn. And more than that, help us to be changed and to experience you in a new way. Lord, we don't want this just to be academic and just merely intellectual. We want an encounter with the living God. Lord, would you please send your Holy Spirit? We need revived, we need renewed, we need restored, we need resurrected, Lord. So come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're preaching through the lectionary for Advent, and and, uh, then we're going to keep on going through the lectionary all the way up until Easter. And if some of you are are new to Anglicanism, the lectionary is a cycle of three-year readings, uh, three-year Sunday readings, and basically the lectionary keeps us honest. And so we don't get to just preach on our favorite passages. We preach on all kinds of different passages, maybe that we read passages that we would perhaps never read. And uh, most of the church actually does the lectionary, believe it or not, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, some Presbyterian, Methodists, and so forth. So well over uh, almost 2 billion Christians, I believe that is, the Catholic Church alone has 1.4 billion are doing the lectionary. So we're doing these readings together. Isn't that kind of cool? You're part of something global and not just, you know, the river, the river, the river, the river, you know. So um, we're, and in the lectionary, by the way, uh, it doesn't just look forward to the, or excuse me, look back to the first coming of Christ. In the lectionary, the readings this week and next week are about looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And that's because the early church layered the first and the second coming of Christ together. So for them, it wasn't just about holiday cookies and, you know, Black Friday sales. For the early church, it was about preparing because Jesus was coming soon. And so our lectionary readings reflect that. Let me just give you a quick peek into what's going to happen in the future. So for these next two weeks, we're going to look at the second coming. We're going to remember about the importance of the second coming. Then the third week, which is December 12th, We're going to open the floor for testimonies from our congregation. In other words, we're going to ask you to think and pray about maybe God has something for you to share of what he's done in your life, and we're going to put the mic there, and that's going to be the sermon for the day. So I want you to think and pray about that. Maybe some of you have been in spiritual formation groups, and you you have some things that God's done in that spiritual formation group. And so uh, that's going to be on the 12th, and then on the 19th, I'm going to pray in what's called the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of praise to God. And what just an amazing story, an amazing song that is. So 
the scripture we're looking at today, Luke 21. Let's jump into that scripture. And in these opening verses, the disciples comment. You can see them walking and going next to these amazing stones of the temple. And if you've ever been there, they're still massive, uh, massive stones of the temple. They're commenting on the beauty and majesty of it. And they say in verse 5 and 6, uh, excuse me, they, it says, there we go, I'm back. Some of his disciples were remarking about the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, let me give you an idea of the size. I have a picture of the temple mount here. Um, the tallest point of the temple, the pinnacle, was 450 feet. It was 445 stories, just to give you the sheer magnitude, the tallest point of the, of the temple down there into the, um, the, the valley. And it was four and a half football fields in long, just the temple mount itself. It was massive. Um, it was, its rebuilding took about 46 years, beginning in 20 BC, built by Herod. Most of it was finished by Jesus' lifetime. So you think about a 46 year, you think construction's bad in Blacksburg, you know, 46 years. And for Jews, this temple was more than like a church building or a place of worship. It was a symbol of God's permanence and God's might and his power and his eternality that God was going to be forever. A reminder that Jews, the Jewish race, and that Israel was going to win the war against Rome and against all her enemies who for over a thousand years had ransacked her and pillaged and, and imprisoned her. Well, Jesus' response to this awe and wonder of the disciples was less than encouraging. In verse 6, he says, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And you can imagine a really pregnant pause after he says that, like, wow, what a downer, Jesus. You know, because according to him, this important symbol, this important symbol of victory and, uh, you know, eternality would be torn down. And in fact, it was. You might know that historically, just 37 years approximately after this conversation in 70 AD, Nero set fire to the uh, city of Jerusalem, blaming it on Christians, burning down Jerusalem and the temple. So rather than answer his disciples' question about, hey, when is this going to happen, Jesus? He responds with a warning. And he responds with a warning not about a building being torn down, but about their faith being torn down. In verse 8, he says, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near, he says, but do not follow them. So indeed, there was a long history of false messiahs, at least 33 if we count them in the, in the Christian tradition, false messiahs who would come and actually gain a following. Most of them were killed. And as you can imagine many of them were military leaders who people put their trust in because they were going to liberate Israel. Uh, a few names you might be familiar with. Anybody heard the name David Kodesh? That was in the 20th century, the Branch Davidians. Am I the only person over 40 here? Okay. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Keep me honest. Appreciate it. 
And we had another one, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Okay, I think I pronounced that correctly. And that was also in the 1990s. I was in Jerusalem, living in Jerusalem, when he, when he was you know, declared to be a Messiah. And he was from New York City. And I was in Jerusalem, and they're having this big party on Ben Yehuda, the main drag in Jerusalem. And I said, Manishma, what's up? You know, blah, blah, blah. And talked to the guy for a little, oh, this, you know, we have a new Messiah. Well, I found out about him. He died. He had a stroke, and he died. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he was like 90 years old. So he, he, I don't know how long he had anyway. But the point is, like, if somebody nominates you to be a Messiah, probably just say, no thanks. You know, like, I recuse. But anyway, after talking about the many people would come disguised as the Messiah, Jesus points to signs of the end of the age. In other words, how would we know? How do we know that he's coming? And he has four signs, and I want to walk through these with you. And the first is, guess what? False messiahs. Check, you know, A+. plus. We've already done that one. Secondly, wars and uprisings. He says in verse 9, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And so again, I'm doing a little research and I'm like wondering how many wars and conflicts. And I found out that there are different criteria for what's a war and what's a conflict. And at this time, a conflict is some a battle that takes between a thousand or uh, one and, and ten thousand people, and there are nineteen conflicts happening in the world right now. There are four wars. That means a, a conflict that that takes the life of over ten thousand people. There are four wars happening right now. Check. Third on Jesus' list are acts of God. He says there will be earthquakes, famines, pestilences, verse 11, in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Again, I did some research. I was just curious. Like it says, talks about earthquakes. Well, in 2021 alone, there were 13 earthquakes that were over a 7.0 magnitude. One of the most violent you might remember was in Haiti recently that killed over 2,000 people. Jesus' lists includes famine, pestilence, fearful events, signs from heaven. Let me ask you, when was the last time we had a global pandemic? 1918, a little over 100 years ago. Do you think a global pandemic, pandemic would satisfy as a fearful event? I think it has. A pestilence? Absolutely. Check. The fourth on Jesus' list is persecution. He says in verse 12, But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues, put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony of me. 21.16 says you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. Verse 17, everyone will hate you. Because of me. What a beautiful holiday sermon, Pastor. Thank you so much. It's, but in all seriousness, it's important that we read this because electionary kind of reminds us that we need to think about these things. 
There's a site called World Watch List, and here's some statistics about persecution. Over 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination because there are different levels of persecution from light to severe. 4,761 Christians have been killed for their faith this year. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 4,277 believers have been detained without trial. They've been arrested and sentenced and imprisoned. And friends, I realize this is really a hard list to look at, especially when you're like thinking holiday cheer, you know. But it is important. When Jesus talks about signs that he's coming, false messiahs, wars, you know, acts of God, persecution, you just go down the list and you see check, 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 check. An important reminder for us that the signs are there. The fig tree is ripe, like he's coming. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but the signs are there. And so I have to ask myself, man, what? how should I respond to this? Should I just go after the service and, you know, stay the same? I hope not. Lord, would you please help me to be changed by hearing that you are coming soon and to somehow write it into the rhythms and patterns of my life, a reminder that you're coming soon? Well, Jesus kind of helps us because alongside the signs, he offers three exhortations, how we are to respond to these signs. And the first exhortation is in verse 14. He says, make up your mind not to worry. Why do I love that phrase, make up your mind? Why do I love that phrase? Because worry is a choice, right? He says, make up your mind not to worry. He says in verse 14, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I think one of the greatest reasons that I'm not more confident and bold is because I'm worried about the consequences of standing up for my faith. I'm worried about the consequences of saying something and having it not be received well. And the problem with worry in general, but also worry as it really relates to us being a witness in the world, is that it substitutes obedience in the, pre- in the present for a future that we cannot know or control. Do you understand that? Worry substitutes being obedient in the present for something that we cannot know and we cannot control. And the opportunity cost, speaking of And the opportunity costs, like in a business sense, what you don't get by worrying is the joy of knowing that we're doing the will of God because we're too focused on not doing something to offend somebody or to whatever, be rejected. Well, a quick story about being obedient to the Holy Spirit, even if we don't know the outcome. And, you know, many of you know my preaching style, and I usually have kind of a ministry of of self-denigration, you know, so to speak. And I make fun of myself and because it, you know, it makes me what I am, like a kid from Pittsburgh. But one time I recently actually really felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to share my testimony with somebody. It was kind of like 
the path was already made for me. And I'll just tell you the quick story. So Robin and I, my wife and I, were at the dog park, which I go to frequently now on Tom's Creek Road, and we were taking our grand dog um, for a walk or to the dog park. And we met a really lovely young couple, and we were talking for some time. It's a great place to meet people, by the way, because you all just talk about your dogs and stuff. And in the middle of the conversation with this young couple, she asked me what I did, you know? So what is it you do? And I usually tell people I'm a pastor first, so they don't ask me a question because it's really awkward when they're like, what do you do? And I'm a pastor. It's like, awkward. So she asked me, what do you do? And then, so at that point, I usually have plan B, which is I told her I'm an IRS auditor, you know? And, and she's like, oh, you know? And I say, no, I'm just kidding. I'm a pastor. And she's like, oh, thank God, you know? And so... And then I joke about, like, what went through your head when I said IRS auditor? And kind of, ha-ha, we just laugh. So then she asked me a really good question. And she says, well, how did you get, how did you become a pastor? How did you get into being a pastor? And I felt like the Lord was saying, here's your little path. You know, here's your little road. And so I said, well, honestly, I had a really radical conversion in college where I was alone and the Holy Spirit just took me over. And gave me a new heart and changed my mind and changed my mouth and my behaviors and things that I could, you know, wasn't willing to change at the time and so forth. And I just laid it out for just a couple minutes, but it was, you know, intense. And she asked me another good question. And she said, do you usually tell this story? You know, I mean, is this common for you? And I said, well, I haven't told it for a little while, but I just really felt that the Lord prompted me to share it with you. And I said, jokingly, ha ha, you know, maybe he's pursuing you. And she said, well, you're the third person this week that's talked to me about Jesus, you know. And so here I'm like, wow. So I invited her to our church and, you know, and said, be glad to, you know, talk with you and so forth. Got her name and the name of her husband and have been praying for them and look forward to meeting them again. But the point is this. If you're a follower of Christ, you have opportunities And you have a reason to stand firm in your faith because there are times where God's going to open a door for you and open a path. And the first question I have to ask is, do you have something to share? Do you have a testimony to share? Do you have a story that you can say, like, let me just tell you how good and grace-giving God has been in my life? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I, I say that to encourage you to Think about what is my relationship with Jesus? Do I have something so precious that I'm compelled to share it? Even if somebody says, oh, that's a bunch of bunk. But the other thing is that you don't need to worry to share it because in verse 15, he says, I will, Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom, just like he gave me words and wisdom. And by the way, and it ended as a wonderful conversation. And I almost felt like we had a special connection that it wouldn't just have with somebody if you just talked about, like, Misty and their dog, you know, Maltese Pomeranians. So secondly, and more briefly, Jesus says this. Jesus says, stand firm and persevere and hold your ground. Verse 18. He says, but not ahead of your head. Let me try that again. Not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. So let me just say this verse says two things. First off, it says, not a 
hair of your head will perish. That's a word, apolumi. It's like another Greek compound word because they're all over the place. Lumi is like to destroy. And apo is like a superlative. It means like to destroy completely or to destroy fully. In other words, what it's not saying is that you will not suffer. It's not saying that you will not experience ridicule. It's not saying that you won't lose your job or even in some places that you won't be killed. But it's saying that you will not perish in the spiritual sense. You will not be destroyed fully because of the second part, and that's stand firm and you will win life. Your reputation may be destroyed, so to speak. You might be known as a Christian, God forbid. People around you might know that, like, yeah, he's a Christian. He actually shared about his faith with me. You might experience some discrimination and so forth. But the question is this, would I rather live physically and die spiritually or would I rather live spiritually and die physically? Like what is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's important to me? Is it more important that God is glorified or that my persona and my reputation is protected? Are you guys hearing this? Because God has a message for us. Stand firm. There's one other aspect to stand firm, and that couldn't be denied in this passage. And that's in regard to purity and holiness. Because the early church, I mean, the early church fasted during Advent. Can you imagine? Like, we're, I, I actually can't imagine. I should fast, right, after Thanksgiving. But I mean, you know, like, oh, I can't eat, you know, can't eat during Advent. You know, no Christmas cookies, you know, ham, turkey, whatever. But that's what they did because they truly wanted to be purged and pure and holy for the coming of Jesus. And so if we truly believe that Jesus is coming, it will impact how we live, that we'll want to be pure. Because if I said, I, if we knew that he's coming on Wednesday, we'd probably want to get our acts together. <laughs> and we'd you know, probably do some things differently. There's a story told by DJ DeHaan about walking the path of righteousness, and it goes like this. A school janitor posted a sign in front of the school that said, keep off the grass, but the children still just ran and trampled over it. Then a fourth grade class had an idea. That fall, they decided to give each child a crocus to plant a bulb to plant along the edge of the sidewalk. And as winter, here's a picture of a crocus, yep, and flowering crocus. And as winter drew to a close, the snow receded from the sidewalk. The children began to watch for signs of spring. And instead of running across the lawn, destroying the grass, they huddled looking for the advent of the first crocus. What a power those hidden bulbs had said Dahan, before they had even poked their heads out, they kept dozens of little feet walking on the right path. And why was that? Because instead of telling over and over what not to do, which the church is really prone to do, the kids had something beautiful to anticipate and to look forward to. The point is this, prohibitions against bad behavior rarely motivate anyone. Some good, some even stir up the desire to disobey these attempts to motivate. But the strongest motivators of good conduct 
are those in which we have a personal investment. Friends, the question for us this morning is, are we personally invested in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Are we still too focused on not running on the grass? What doesn't motivate us is to hear, do this, don't do this, do this. We find ourselves like, Paul, I don't want to, what I don't want to do, I do, and, what I, and so forth. But the good news is that Jesus has invited you and me to prepare ourselves, but also to prepare other people for his coming. And that's an amazing privilege. And that's something to look forward to, like the budding of a crocus. Third and finally, Jesus says, lift up your heads and look up. Luke 21, verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When I heard that phrase, lift up your heads, you know, look up, I began to think, you know, this isn't just like look up when you hear the trumpet call and you see you know, angels and archangels and all the company of heaven and Jesus coming on clouds. That's not just what this is referring to. Looking up is like the posture of our heart each and every day that we say soon and very soon, right? Soon and very soon. We should be looking towards and looking for the Son of God to come. So I ran into an interesting fact as I was thinking about this. I I was thinking, you know, are there are there flowers that that follow the sun? And I looked it up. And many of you probably know this, but I'm not a flower guy, which may shock you. And they are called heliotropic flowers. And one of those flowers up here on the screen is the daisy, right? The common flower. And the daisies close at night, but during the day, they literally wake up and open up and they follow the sun from east to west and then they close. Then the next morning, they wake up and they literally follow the sun from east to west and then they close. And I thought, man, what a great metaphor for what we're to be like. You know, at night we rest, we let our body recharge, but we wake up and we say, Jesus, I'm just going to follow your movements across the sky of my life. I'm going to follow your movements throughout the day. I'm going to practice the presence of God throughout the day. I'm going to listen for you and look for you and be sensitive to your Holy Spirit throughout the day. And then at night, I'm just going to close my eyes. (laughs) And then tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and do it all again. Hebrews 12 says, and I'll just read the, uh, the verse, it says at the end, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, or the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Well, I want to close with a quote by Vance Havner. And have any of you heard that name? I had heard it a little bit, but not much. So Vance Havner grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. He is a 20th century figure, grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, was called to preach at an early age. He was licensed at the age of 12. So if you're a young person and you think, oh, what good can I do at, you know, at 10 or 12, think about Vance Havner. 
because he was licensed at 12 years old. He was ordained at 15, and he preached all over America the revivals of the 20th century, and he was beloved and renowned as a revival preacher. But Vance Havner says this, and I'll end with this quote. The New Testament Christians were not only ready, they, and you can just close your eyes and picture this, this little uh, analogy he uses. The New Testament Christians were not only ready, they were expectant, hilariously anticipating the Lord's return. And we also are to prepare and look for our Lord. It is one thing for us to be ready for someone to come. It's another thing to eagerly expect and await the coming of someone. Visualize, he says, a small town railway station. And inside that little ticket office is the station agent. He's an authority on the train schedule. He's read up on that. He knows when the train is due. Out in the station yard is a young bride-to-be who's looking for her love to come on the next train. She does not know a great deal about the train schedule. The only reason why she's interested is because of him who is coming. The station agent may be an authority, and yet he may be very dull (laughs) because he's not eagerly expecting anyone. The girl in the station yard may not be an authority, but she is so happy that she can hardly live. If I had to choose between them, I'd rather be the girl in the yard. Please pray with me, and if you can kneel if you're able. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, And you can join us in person, if you like, on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.